Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Uh, so, by the way, I have some cl- more clarification, I think, what God would have me do with this section on the Sermon on the Mount. We're having some fun with it. I'm doing the basic exegesis and how I develop a, a sermon, if you will, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm trying some new things. I'm ranting a little bit. And I'm still planning on doing an expanded translation, as I've done before uh, in this podcast series, that reflects the exegesis, in my opinion. But I'm also contemplating doing something like a historical novel-styled book that reviews the section from the point of view of Matthew a couple of decades after he wrote his gospel. And I'm going to say more, but I'm just getting it out there. Uh, If you're interested, uh, have questions, give me a shout, bill at gospel-app.com. Also, I want to invite you to follow me on Instagram, Gospel App, one word, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. Lots of interesting stuff. On the Instagram, I'm trying to connect with or to be the voice for Christians who are struggling with such things, important things such as loneliness and anxiety and pandemic PTSD, unforgivenesses and doubts and lack of faith, and don't seem to be finding a lot of respite in their communities, in their faith communities. Uh, And look, if you don't struggle with those things first, I'd be surprised and good on you. I'm jealous. But look, you certainly know people who do, and we're trying to help. Uh, And and you know people who might benefit from following uh, me on Instagram. So pass it on, gospel app, one word, and I would be very grateful. Okay, back to the Gospel Rant. We're looking at the calling of the disciples now, a very short section. Things are picking up, and we're going to start having some real fun now. We're still not in the Sermon on the Mount exactly. And remember, I said we have kind of become lazy lazy as we critically look at these chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. We cruise through Matthew 3 and 4 kind of in a rush to get to the Mount, because that's the important things, right? Or we just skip them all together. And that's too bad, because there's lots of important and necessary stuff, particularly as Matthew is telling us who Jesus is. This is the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, What's his character? What is his innate capacity? What's he here for? And you'll see what I mean. And I think it's life-changing stuff. It'll certainly change how you read the Sermon on the Mount. You let me know if that's the case. Bill at gospel-app.com. And listen, I'm going to rant. You decide what you think and give me feedback. You can disagree. But come on, why would you? It's biblical. And, and hopefully we're having some fun. All right. The Jesus who will stand and preach to the hungry, failed, ashamed masses on the Sermon on the Mount outside of Capernaum is not just a qualified rabbinical teacher. He brings something far, far, far more to the table. All right, and here are the seven things we've been looking at. He's definitely a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever. But he's speaking to people who will never accomplish those principles, ever. All all of us will fail. Two, he's hypernomian, meaning he takes the law so seriously. No one who ever has walked on the planet Earth has a higher view of the law or took it more seriously than Jesus. That's important. We can't let that go. Three, he's come to rescue failures, helpless rejects, the unclean, those people who can't pick themselves up. The tokoi, uh, Matthew will describe them, uh, sitting at his feet on the hill. The lonely, the isolated, the addicted, those who screwed up their lives and can't fix it, for those who think they're not enough, the celestially disconnected, those who are afraid that God has rejected them. Four, when he speaks, this is so important, we're going to be developing it more, particularly in this section, actual power happens. 
He speaks with power, not just with words. And that power changes lonely people's lives and identities and makes them more people of honor and relationship. Five, he is he regularly humiliates himself. This is the God who steps down from his throne to look upon his creation. He has to humiliate himself to touch us. And he does that in order to do number three, to rescue humiliated people. No wonder regular people flock to him. They didn't feel shamed by him. He was one of them, even though he wasn't. And when beat up people saw his face, his eyes, his posture, his smile, they felt welcomed and honored. Six, he's the only approved of son of God. We saw that in the baptism, period. He's the only one since Adam and Eve who is truly experiencing connectedness and enoughness in his humanity, in relationship to the Trinity. The rest of us, including those on the hillside, are sucking wind to one degree or another. And last, he is modeling, and we saw this in the temptation, the walk of spirit faith. It's not natural to us at all. Matter of fact, it it really is contrary to our clinging to so-called free will, but it is natural to God. He And he knows that you and I will not do the things that are taught in the similar amount on our own steam. We're just it's not that we're just lacking information or stick to or education, or we need another conference. WWJD, is it enough? It was never enough. And truth told, I don't want to DWJD, or I would have, right? be honest, I need to be more dependent and submissive to the Spirit's moment-to-moment direction. And, and there's part of my humanity that hates doing that. I need power that I don't have and motivation that I don't have that comes from Him. I can access it, but it's not from within me. We'll see that more and more. All right, now let's get into the calling of the disciples. It's not a toss-away section, as you'll see. Uh, we'll learn so much more about the uh, the historical context of Jesus and begin to see what the spoken words of Jesus can accomplish as we look at the calling. And we looked in detail at the baptism section, the temptation section, and uh, and we've talked about how that helps us hear the Sermon on the Mount differently. So here we are calling the disciples, okay? Um, Matthew 4, 12 to, 13, uh, 12 to 17. It goes to 22, but I'm going to look at 12 to 17 this time. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. All right, don't fall asleep on Old Testament quotes. I know what happens. We're all human, right? Because this is really wildly insightful and important. What Matthew does with it is so, so interesting and might trouble you at at first. But remember, it's spirit ignited. It's spirit uh, driven. All right, so context. Matthew sets a particular crisis as the launch, the launching point of the new phase of Jesus's ministry. And the crisis is John the Baptist's arrest. And John's not going to survive that crisis. His work is complete, but this is the ready, set, go for Jesus's public ministry launch. We knew that the kingdom was near, we've been told, by John the Baptist. And and now, not only is it near, it's here. It's launched. It's happening. This is now the kingdom. We're now seeing things that we haven't seen before. 
because the kingdom is here. Now, there's a lot of geek review of the world, anachoresin, which means withdrew or depart from the same location. Uh, some see in this word a strategic move for Jesus to want to protect himself. Really? So here, here's how that kind of fleshes out. So in order not to face the same threat as John, Jesus withdrew. He left Nazareth. He kind of runs and he goes underground in Capernaum. He gets out of the heat because he wants to save his neck. I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so at all. Matter of fact, here's the danger of that is it's just the opposite. This was not an anxious Jesus. This was a bold, heroic move by him. He went to Capernaum, of course, led by the Spirit, where he was more exposed to danger, not less. A little geography would be helpful. Uh, Let me me ask you to imagine first century Israel divided into three parts, south to north, with the Mediterranean Sea, the boundary to the west, and the Jordan River to the east. Are you with me? Judea is the southern portion that extends from the desert to the south, Hebron and and so forth, to Jerusalem, Jericho, uh, where John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River. All of that took place in Judea. Immediately to the north of Judea is the hill country of Samaria. Remember, not exactly very Jewish. Remember the woman at the well account. North of Samaria is Galilee with Mount Carmel on the Mediterranean sea edge to the northwest, the famous Valley of Megiddo ranging southeast from there, and the Sea of Galilee in the northeastmost region, bordering the Decapolis east of the Jordan River. So, and Judea, right, the southern region was under Roman rule directly. Galilee was ruled by Herod Antipas, who was still a Roman vessel, but had limited independence. Further northeast, Galilee, Bethsaida, was ruled by Philip, which was more Gentile even still. At the time of Jesus's ministry, the Judeans in the south tended to look down, not tended, they looked down on the Galileans to the north. They viewed them as uneducated, backwoods, questionable ancestry. Check out John 146 and John 752. Religiously impure, Jew lights, if you will. Galileans also had a reputation of being rabble-rousers, as they often took part in protests and uprisings against the Roman occupiers. And it's significant then, doesn't this change how you envision Jesus growing up in that region in Galilee among a, a people that were largely despised by Jerusalem and were passively aggressive against Rome, just beneath the surface? For one commentator, Frederick Bruner, Quote, the distance from Zion, which was Jerusalem, right? The distance from Zion was not only geographic, probably about a four days walk from Jerusalem in those days. Judeans thought Galileans sat rather loose to the law and were less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. Galilee was notorious as a nest of revolution and a haunt of proto-zealot revolutionary movements. And he's right. Uh, Just before Jesus' birth, so 30 years before the this particular time before the Sermon on the Mount. And it was ignited by Quirinius's census of the Christmas story. Do you remember? Galilee was the location of a Jewish revolt led by Judas the Galilean, and they attempted to reestablish an independent Jewish state. Sepphoris, which was the Roman fortified capital city of the Galilean province, and a stone's throw just four miles northwest of Nazareth, was burned to the ground. Herod the great son, Herod Antipas, crushed, I mean, crushed the revolt. He slaughtered the young men 
uh, and left the Jewish community in Galilee devastated and missing an entire generation of men and in societal shame. I mean, think think of that, right? When Jesus is speaking to these people, just 30 years before that, a generation before that, uh, the, the men, the, the fighting age men had been, to some degree, wiped out. Everyone would have known somebody who died in the uprising. And so fierce anger, uh, PTSD, immense hatred at Rome, just maybe just beneath the surface. All right, back to Matthew 4. If Matthew is indeed presenting a timeline, which we've, we've talked about, it may or may not be so. Uh, Matthew takes great liberties. It's, a, it's an ancient history, not the type of history we do. Uh, so if he is presenting a timeline after the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, to his, to his home, his family's home in Nazareth. Uh, so, you know, four-day walk. And by the way, uh, Jesus's ancestral tribal home, just to remind you, is Judea, right? He's of the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. Uh, that's his rightful home. But they probably migrated to Galilee in the north by the first century, maybe when their ancestors came back to the land from exile in the sixth century BC. Nazareth, I don't know what you have had in your mind. It was just a small village. Archaeologists think maybe 500 people at the time. It was hidden away in a natural mountain bowl just north of the important valley of Megiddo. Five-hour walk along narrow roads up into the accessible hills from the, the, the international highway, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. We'll talk more about that. And the, the, the way of the sea, the Via Maris, went from Damascus even further east in Syria uh, uh, connected with the Spice Road through the Far East. It went west of, uh, across the northern regions of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, Capernaum, through the Valley of Megiddo, and then to Asia Minor and Rome, if you took a right at the Mediterranean Sea, or Egypt, if you turned left. I mean, it was a huge Roman highway uh, committed to the transportation, committed to merchants, committed to armies traveling to protect the, the Roman peace. One person compared Nazareth, remember about a five-hour walk, to, to mice hiding in the hills, safe away from the large cats who walked along the international highway. It was Jewish, Nazareth was, but notably different from Jerusalem Jewish. It had political leanings. And so look, let's toss in some passive aggressiveness there. So we imagine Nazareth, I do, of the Christmas story as a laid-back stayed Jewish ghetto with carpenters and farmers and the like. But shortly before that, the Romans had slaughtered an entire generation of men there. What did John do after the, the baptism of Jesus? Well, it, it appears that John went from the Jordan River, uh, just east of, as I mentioned, in Judea north into Galilee, and ended up in Sepphoris, very close to Nazareth, four miles northwest, because that's where the throne of Herod Antipas was. And there he he had his fateful run-in with the king and was jailed and ultimately beheaded. So that is Matthew's historical trigger. triggers. He's looking back and telling the story, what launched the ministry, what historical event, it was John's arrest. This is the ready, set, go for Jesus's three-year kingdom sprint. Then, Matthew says, Jesus moved his base of operations, which at the time was just himself, and he moved it 20 miles to the northeast in Galilee to Capernaum, just on the banks of of the the uh, sea the uh, sea of Galilee, this was not a protective reaction as we often portray it. 
like Jesus was afraid of the king coming after him too, so he moved to Capernaum where he would be safe. And see, the problem I have with that is that he was not safer on the Via Maris in Capernaum. This is this is a coming out party. This was public and very dangerous. It was a launch of his international coming out uh, as the Messiah. And, it's, and by the way, there's an ancient Roman highway road mark in Capernaum, the international Via Maris just passed by Capernaum. So Jesus's ministry went from largely Jewish to now being international, worldwide. This is I'm guessing that you have not heard that before. Here's what we typically communicate, that Jesus was strictly focused on the Jews. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. And and that's wildly overstated because Jesus, again and again, we see that he comes for lost and helpless humanity, Jews and non-Jews. Capernaum. Capernaum by the sea was a bustling sea town in those days. And it did service, one of the reasons for its growth was it serviced the international highway. So while Nazareth, remember about 500 people, worked hard to maintain much of his Jewishness again, remember the passive aggressiveness and the anger at Rome, uh, probably more secular religious than temple religious, or at least that's what the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem thought, uh, of Galilee being impure, more uh, tainted by the nations. In contrast, Capernaum was a hodgepodge. It was a melting pot, and Matthew even calls it Galilee of the nations. I think that's interesting, right? Uh, and, and if and, and he, Matthew says that, I think the way we hear this is if, as if all who read his account would agree. It was thoroughly mixed population, says one commentator, France. I mean, to be fair, Capernaum, per archaeologist, was still more Jewish than some other port towns and villages on the Sea of Galilee, like Bethsaida. Uh, based upon the absence of pig bones and unclean fish bones. And by the way, Capernaum had the presence of a what we think was a pretty large synagogue. So it had a large Jewish presence, but it was a mix, right? And so the point is that it was the rubbing, it was rubbing shoulders with other cultures in a way that Nazareth or Jerusalem avoided uh, and would have would have hated. And by the way, pig bones were dug up in Bethsaida, which is only six miles to the east. So this is where the kingdom of heavens was officially launched on the earth, not in Jerusalem, not in Nazareth. I think that's fascinating, right? Right on the right in the the exit ramp to the international highway. That's that's the idea. Jesus works where uh, this is a Bruner again quote. Jesus works where Judaism touches paganism, where the where the nation intersects nation, where the light meets the darkness. Jesus lives among the marginal peoples on the frontier. All of you missionaries rejoice. Jesus has always been about all humanity. All right, to oversimplify, Jerusalem was Roman-occupied but maintained fierce religiosity. It was the hub of first-century Judaism, the priests, the temple, all the offshoot religious sects like Qumran. They saw themselves as the religious righteous, the protectors of Yahwism. Nazareth was a Jewish ghetto but would have been considered by Jerusalem is being tainted by the nations, impure, unpleasing to God. So, also too simplistic, but for the sake of our story, the entire region of northern Galilee was politically interested in Jewish independence by the Jews, right? And a return of Jewish independence state under the Hasmoneans, which fell only 30 to 40 years earlier. Capernaum? Capernaum was a thriving blue-collar hub 
probably a 1,500 people or so, right? Nazareth, maybe four to 500. Capernaum is three times larger. It's right on the growing international highway. And, and, and it intersects where Judaism intersects with 100 other cultures. And if one strategically wanted to reach the world and the other nationalities and cultures, this was a great place to be. If Jesus was just going for the Jews, he would have gone to Jerusalem. He would have stayed in Judea. Or maybe Nazareth, right? Um, that would have had a different flavor. Now, uh, Capernaum would have had definite pockets of Judaism, but it was also touched by the world, and, and it also touched the world. Jerusalem and Nazareth, those guys were hidden away. They were well off international trade routes. They, uh, they, there's some international denying going on there. They were both hidden in the hills. The, the international highways didn't directly go through there. You had to want to go to Jerusalem to get there. You had to want to get to Nazareth if, to get there. But not Capernaum. Capernaum was on an artery, the Via Maris. All right, let me talk about the Via Maris real quickly. It's the highway where armies marched, where philosophers taught and traveled, where merchants plied their trade. Here's Bruner again, quote, the choice of venue suggests the missionary Jesus. Jesus's move to Galilee's of the Gentiles demonstrates God's amazing initiative towards those who never, ever have been considered, close quote. This was not Jesus hiding trying to protect himself and his, and his beginning ministry, anything but that. This was Jesus' international coming out party. Did it work? Yes, considering the description of the crowd that will gather from the north, south, east, and west to hear him on the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of the heavens is now in one fell swoop international in scope. The kingdom of God was not shedding its profound Jewishness, right? Don't misunderstand me. Not at all. But clearly, we can see now that it has an international smell and intent, in, in, intentionalness to it. God's heart is for the lost and broken humanity. and always has been. This has been a common misunderstanding and misemphasis, right? Uh, here's an example of that. Quote, wrong, wrongly quote, uh, wrongly taught by one scholar. Quote, the Gospels, that would include Matthews, reveal a Jesus focused on Israel. In fact, his ministry appears to be focused so relentlessly on the Jewish people that many scholars have debated whether Jesus was concerned with outsiders at all. I, this is a respected scholar, and I, I can't believe that this person says that. And they're getting their cue by wrongly interpreting Matthew 15, 24, I think. Again, this is a rant. You can push back, bill at gospel-app.com, but here it is. In Matthew 15, 24, Jesus is speaking to the disciples who are trying to insulate him from the Canaanite woman, right? This is a perfect example of this. And the Canaanite woman is trying to get him to heal her daughter, which he eventually does. And the disciples urge Jesus to send her away. Can you hear the Jerusalem Judaism in that? And by the way, she is the only one with obvious faith in the room other than Jesus. And the typical translation of 1524 is this, quote, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. All right, and that's, honestly, that's a legit, hard literal translation. Uh, if you pop that out of context, you, you can get there in the Greek. And it's followed by the, uh, the interpretation that Jesus was only sent to the Jews, and later the kingdom mission was expanded through Paul, Peter a little, but primarily Paul to the Gentiles. You've heard that, right? It's been in every Sunday school class. But Matthew 15, 24 could be seen in a different way. Jesus asking a question, almost sarcastically, wasn't I only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? I mean, isn't it said? <laughs> Haven't you said? And, and you can, this is legit, the Greek participle, simple, ook, 
could mark the sentence as an interrogative, a question. Uh, look at Matthew 6, 26, verse 30, 17, 24. So it's legit to read this as Jesus using a little tongue-in-cheek, a little sarcasm to make his point without being critical. And the woman then playfully responds. You see how this works? Go back and read the section again. And the only ones not getting the joke are the disciples, and kind of the the, the joke is on them. And by the way, so many modern translators and interpreters and preachers. Again, push back, bill at gospel-app.com. Jesus is and has always been about the entire descendants of Adam and Eve. He is Jewish and, humanly speaking, doesn't have a Greek bone in his body, and yet he chooses to begin at the beginning, not in Judea, but in Galilee, not in Nazareth, but in Capernaum. Back to Matthew 4. Matthew does some masterful creative interpretation from the Old Testament Isaiah scroll, uh, and it probably will trouble literal interpreters, those who who have to go literal um, without looking at the context. Here's what Isaiah 9 says, and this was written about 733, so 760 years before math, uh, before Jesus and Capernaum. Here's Isaiah uh, chapter 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of the death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, it's very familiar, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There we are. All right, listen track my observations, and then push back if you want to. But I find this ridiculously interesting and uh, uh, instructive. Isaiah is looking at that Galilean region where Jesus is now as if it was a conquering Assyrian general, looking from the east of the Jordan River, right on the eastern side, looking west towards the Mediterranean Sea. So so across uh, the, the northern region of Galilee, so we're where Bethsaida is now and Capernaum is right now, looking beyond Nazareth towards the sea. And and literally, verse 1 says, toward the sea, meaning Mediterranean, across the Jordan River, so the region west of the river. This general, right, Isaiah gives him eyes, he's amassed his armies on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, in in what would be, in Matthew's time, the Decapolis region, and is about to cross into northern Galilee and will not stop ravaging the area until he gets to the Mediterranean Sea. So he'll just take a broom and sweep the Jews out of that area. Isaiah's prophesying that uh, that army is imminent and is going to shred the northern regions, particularly the region of Galilee, where the descendants of the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali historically lived. Historically, Isaiah got it right. It happened. Uh, These were the first Jews taken into captivity, the long exile, the separation from the land. Verse 2 to 5 tells them that there's hope of an an eventual rescue, an eventual restoration and honor, return to the land. 
It's dark now, but there's going to be a fresh rescuing light dawning. And he got that right, too. And, and as often the case, this prophecy has multiple levels of fulfillment. Isaiah's immediate fulfillment of light in the darkness happened in 538 BC, we know, when these were perhaps the first Jews released from captivity, and they returned to their tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, and largely the region of Galilee. But what Matthew does creatively, spirit-inspired creativity, sees another fulfillment, so much better. From Matthew's point of view, what the Isaiah prophecy also meant was about to happen, it was going to happen with Jesus. So first century Nazareth was typically in Zebulun, and Capernaum is historically in Naphtali. So Jesus did his, uh, most of his adult ministry in those formal tribal lands that Isaiah talks about, Zebulun and Naphtali. A new kingdom with a new conquering army. And the, the, it's not a sword, it's the gospel, it's good news. And it's going to ravage that region as well, but in a, in a different way. So Matthew generously tweaks the Old Testament passage. I mean, exegetes, hear this. He says it's now by the sea, but he's talking about the Sea of Galilee versus the Mediterranean Sea, which appears clearly what Isaiah was talking about. And now he imagines a different conqueror facing the Sea of Galilee. So imagine Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount looking down into the, into the lake. This time it's Jesus. I want to point out something else very interesting. We usually attribute Isaiah 9, 6 to 7 to the Christmas story, the birth of the incarnated God-child Jesus. And it is that. That's true. But Matthew is absconding that to apply the verses to Jesus's adult ministry as the ordained son of God. Remember the baptism? Uh, Quoting Psalm 2, you are now my son with whom I'm well pleased. He comes to this devastated and shamed tribal regions, helplessly still humiliated by conquerors. And this has gone on for generations. And from there, from that uh, emptiness, that void, the humili- presence of shame and humiliation and oppression and enslavement to uh, to Rome, he's going to launch a new kingdom where the government will be on his shoulders. And the kingdom of heaven is not only near, it's, it's there. And the light, the government is a person. And by the way, an institution too. It's Jesus and it is the kingdom of God. So Matthew 4.16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. All right, this is so heady. Uh, okay, so Isaiah said that that those are uh, those people when that general finds them, they're walking in darkness, and and they've seen a great light. They're uh, those who they're walking in the land, right? You hear the movement, walking and walking. Well, Jesus, cha- uh, sorry, Matthew changes it to the verb kathemai, which is to sit, to stay in place. Is he implying that? Jesus gets there, it's even worse than before. It's gotten worse. People before exile were walking or stumbling around in darkness and foolishness and confusion and anxiety. I mean, you can think of the pandemic nowadays and the same feelings exist, right? But now when Jesus gets there, not only have they not improved their lot, they're stuck. They, they, they can't salvage themselves. They're tokoi in the Greek. We'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's too hard to even move in the morass of confusion and anxiety and PTSD. One person said that Matthew, quote, believes that spiritual darkness is so thick it immobilizes. That's Bruner again. What can we make of 
this being stuck in darkness. All right, so bear with me. In the next section, Jesus is going to reach out to a couple of local fishermen. See, now we can see them the way the new conquering general, Jesus, the new conquering rescuer, sees them. They're among the people who are, they're stuck. They're trapped. They, they can't get out. They're in quicksand. And the more they move, the further down they go. They're underwater, if you will. And, but they don't see it. They don't feel it. But hey, are you a tradesperson, teacher, priest, father, son, child, Jew, Roman? You're born in and live in stuck in this relative darkness. I mean, look, that doesn't mean you don't laugh sometimes or dance sometimes or make money or build a house, right? But relatively speaking, when Jesus, when the kingdom comes, from their point of view, from God's point of view, it finds you in deep human stuckness and you can't save where you can't save yourself. This is not where you were meant to be. And that's why Jesus has come, not to just give you principles to live better by, but to ask you, actually rescue you and me from darkness. And that's why Jesus has gone to such great lengths, right? The incarnation to come as a rescuer, not to give us just better guidelines, not to improve my lot, not to improve families, right? Not to, I'm stuck and I'm stuck in darkness, depression, think anxiety, think uh, feeling like I haven't been enough, that I haven't achieved, that I've fallen short, that I've fallen short of expectations. He is coming to rescue us from darkness. Do we have that perspective all around us, but also inside of our brains and hearts, our relationships are in darkness. Religion is in darkness. Science is in darkness. Commerce is in darkness. That's the point. And we should not read the Sermon on the Mount as solely a moral life lesson for people who live in darkness, and they can change their lives to live in less darkness. It is so much more than that because our need, we're desperate, even though we don't recognize that we're in such denial. We're stuck in this morally and relational dark morass. We even need the kingdom coming to be able to see the darkness, to become even a little aware of our stuckness. When Jesus comes, people begin to see how stuck they really were and, and how daily they've lived in denial. Here's Bruner again, quote, persons apart from Christ the light are in the world of night. They are not able by themselves to open themselves to God. They sit under the shadow of death. They need Jesus to live and to see. Light is not the nations are or have in themselves. It is what comes to them in Jesus. Close quote. Um, and here's, here's a quote from Luther. I also picked this up from Bruner's commentary. Quote, don't you think that this is an inexpressible light which enables us to see the heart of God and the depth of the Godhead? And that we may also see the thoughts of the devil and what sin is and how to be freed from it and what death is and how to be delivered and what man is and the world and how to conduct oneself in it. No one before was sure what God is or whether there are devils, what sin and death are, let alone how to be delivered. This is all the work of Christ. And here's another quote from Boris Pasternak and Dr. Shivago. And then into this tasteless heap of gold and marble he came, light and emphatically human, deliberately provincial Galilean, and at that moment, gods and nations ceased to be, and man came into being. Oh, I love that. Uh, quoted in Brunner. So summary, the kingdom of the heavens is no longer near. It's here. It's launched. Where is its first salvo, and what does it look like? It's not in Jerusalem. That's so, so interesting. Not an insurrectionist, zealot-loaded Israeli independent movement, Nazareth, but in one of the most secular Jewish and yet Romanesque communities in Israel at the time. Kingdom launch is described as a light that shines in helpless darkness. 
which would include Nazareth and the prophecy, but reasonably would include the heart of Judaism in Jerusalem too. The darkness is in denial. It's needy. It's trying to fend for itself, but failing. It's self-focused. It can only see to the end of its nose and or the end of the day. The darkness needs, just desperately needs external, unaffected light to be changed. This is just not another Sunday school class on how to treat your neighbors well. The change that comes is against the will of the darkness. To anthropomorphize the darkness, it's against its very nature, meaning the light, to one degree or another, is not welcomed in the darkness. It's, it's against it, and the darkness responds defensively. Again, we need power. And also, per Isaiah, the kingdom has a political aspect. There will be a new government ruled by one individual. In the wake of this kingdom, there will be new peace, new justice, new rightness, particularly the new rightness related to God, relational rightness. Not from a change to Rome, not from an independent Jewish state, not from a first century Jewish religion or religious sects like Qumran, but from this strange thing, this kingdom of Jesus. Let me put it another way and being a tad provocative. Israel was set free from exile in the 6th century BC, but still in exile, even after 600 years, even after 100 years of Hasmonean Jewish self-rule. They're still trapped. They're still enslaved. They're still impressed. They're still humiliated in an honor-shame culture. They're still a people of shame, and they will now be set free. By the way, free to serve Yahweh with all their heart, mind, and strength, only after Yahweh's zeal accomplishes it. Jesus is leading this new revolutionary movement. His kingdom is going to be celestial. And ironically, this independence movement is in the tragic wake of Galilee's failed one. So the humans tried it and work. So now this new kingdom, and this kingdom is Jewish. It's revolutionary. So something for Jerusalem and something for Nazareth, something for everyone. All right. I, w- I want to shift. We talked about the nature of Jesus. Is he, he is the kingdom, right? So what's the nature of the kingdom? The seven things we're learning about Jesus as, as Matthew is doing his character development, they apply to the kingdom. So here we go. What can we say about the kingdom now? Well, it has life, moral, ethical, and relational principles that would serve us well, that we're supposed to do, related to loving God and others first, beyond which anyone has ever done. This kingdom loves the law. It takes it more seriously than Judaism ever has, more than Qumran, more than the Sadducees and Pharisees put together. It's hypernomian, this kingdom. It doesn't take the law lightly. It pursues, rescues, and embraces failures, rejects, the unclean. Uh, it is for the lonely, for the isolated, for those who feel like they're not enough and celestially disconnected, who cannot improve their lot. And the very first blessed is blessed are the tokoi. That's them. Uh, the people who can't change, they're broken. They're done. Kingdom also, four, comes with power to change. It's made up of powerful proclamation and words made from the throne, and they have power that actually change. Five, it's a kingdom that is noted by its willingness to humiliate itself in order to accomplish its mission, which is in order to reach and rescue the humiliated. Six, it's the only approved kingdom of God. Seven, it's the kingdom that works uh, the ongoing gears or the spirits lead day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, choice by choice. It doesn't rely on people's better understanding or status or intelligence or teaching or any muscle group or choice. It requires an alien power, person, the spirit. And, and, and that's, that's what we need to move in this kingdom, to succeed in this kingdom. All right, a little tease, Matthew 4, 17. First official presser, uh, the press release post-launch. And again, it's, it's only Jesus, a Jew with a storefront office in Capernaum. So he's got a computer, a copy machine, a cell phone, refrigerator, 
right? Coffee maker, no ad, no administration, no assistant, no employees, just the world, him, mainly non-Jewish world surrounding this Jew. And his first message is this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. All right. Don't gloss that over. We're going to dig deep in that a little bit. And uh, in two podcasts, we're going to drill down into that. The next podcast, we're going to look at the calling of the apostles. It's everything that that kingdom does, and you'll see it. Um, And then we want to take a look at what repentant, based upon that, actually, we're going to unpack it differently. Because Jesus is preaching it to, John preached it to a strict Jewish audience. Jesus is saying the exact same thing John said to the Jews. He's saying it to Jews secular Jews and Gentiles. So what does repent mean? Jesus says it, and you'll be surprised. Um, okay. And and after that podcast, which is two from now, you'll, we'll have a working definition of what repentance is. And I'm telling you, I think it'll make you smile. Okay. Help us get the word out about this podcast. We're, uh, we're ranting a bit. We're taking some dangerous interpretations, but life-changing. Look, tell people, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your church, your small group, tell them to take the time to listen to us from the very beginning of the series. Uh, By the way, over on my podcast, The Forgiving Path, again, wherever podcasts are found, I just published a podcast about Ghislaine uh, Maxwell verdict. I think you'll find that interesting from a Christian perspective. We're not hearing this out there. At least I haven't. Uh, And it's called Forgiving Ghislaine. Uh, I want to use the recent trial to clarify some aspects of biblical forgiving, what it does and what it doesn't look like. So if you know someone who has been abused or trade or raped or has been caught up in sex trading or, or, or the like, this would be good news for them, I think. Let them know and help us get this gospel out to hurting Christians. Be part of our missional team movement. And thanks ahead of time. All right. Until next podcast, this is Bill Senyard, Eckhart, child of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.